Episode 3, The Network's Number 1 Law, The Power Law. <laughs> What's the rumpus? I'm Asaf Shapira and this is Netflix. I practiced network analysis for years and founded the first podcast in Israel that tackles the fascinating world of network science. Networks are the building blocks of our universe and we encounter them everywhere. That's why understanding networks is essential to understand our world and our data. And if networks are everywhere, then to miss out on the chance to learn about them seems like borderline carelessness. So good for you. Let's begin. The power law distribution is perhaps the most basic but awesome phenomena in networks. We met the power law in previous episode and, as advertised, this episode will dig deeper on the subject and broaden our understanding of it and, most importantly, how can it help us in life. This episode will consist of two parts. Part 1 will serve as an introduction to explain what is the power law and why the power law is not intuitive. We'll give lots of examples to show that the power law is all around us and also we'll deal with the implications of the power law in real life. The second part will focus on power law in networks, but also why is there a power law? What stands behind this phenomena? And of course, as a climax, how does understanding the power law helps us in network analysis? As we said in the past, network analysis is associated, among others, with the field of statistics, and the power law is part of it. So first, we need to prepare to the journey we're embarking on by reminding ourselves that the field of statistics is not intuitive. For example, I remember arguing with a friend for four hours about the famous Monty Hall problem. This problem is named after a TV game show host, which during the show presented the participant with three curtains. Behind one of the curtains, there was a valuable prize, say, a goat with a bell, and behind the other two curtains, there was nothing. The participant's goal was to choose which curtain to unveil in order to win what's behind it. Suppose the participants chose curtain number one. Then the host, who knew where the goat was, unveiled curtain number two to show that there was nothing behind it. Then he turned to the participants to ask if they decide to stay with their original choice or switch their choice to curtain number three. According to our intuition, what should the participants do? Stay or switch? I'll make an educated guess and say that most of us are not born and raised on statistics. That's why most of us aren't aware of the world of distributions, but I guess we all know this one. The normal distribution. That's because normal distribution is our bedrock for many of our intuitions. It's also known as a bell distribution for its bell shape, or a Gaussian distribution, or a Poisson. It's a lot of names for one distribution, and it sounds suspicious. Makes one wonder if it's trying to hide something. But most of us let it off the hook because it's normal. What could go wrong with normal? Another appealing feature that contributes to the overall popularity of the normal distribution is the average, or mean. For example, as we send our beloved 3.8 feet tall children to first grade, we won't have to worry that they will be surrounded by giants or that the chair that they will be sitting on will be too small. That's because according to the Ministries of Health Statistics, 3.8 is the average height for their age. There will be some shorter kids and some taller, but the majority will be approximately the same height. And that's why people like averages. The concept of average makes life much simpler. Though just a single number, we feel it tells the story behind most of the data. This presenter is not a statistician or a social psychologist, but in my subjective opinion, most of us perceive the world through normal distribution. We see some extreme cases at one end of the scale and some at the opposite end, but the majority tends to populate the middle grounds, and this sounds normal. Political opinions are an excellent example of a normal distribution. We have extremists on both sides, but the majority rallies towards center parties and we have election results to prove it. But what if instead of looking at political views, we look at political actions, for example, participating in demonstrations? Suddenly we see a shift and we get a polar distribution. 
We talked about it a bit in the previous episode, but let's give a brief reminder of what a polo is. The polo distribution is named after the equation it stands for that contains a power, power in the mathematical sense, which will make the graph non-linear. Now enough with the formalities, let's try a more visual way to picture how a polo graph should look like and compare it to a normal graph. The following example is dedicated to those of us who aren't growing up but are just getting older. If a normal distribution looks like a boa constrictor digesting an elephant, then a Paolo graph will look like a Brachiosaurus. Brachiosaurus, as my dear son explained to me, was the largest dinosaur in the world and had a straight long neck like a giraffe and a very long tail. If we picture the Brachiosaurus on a chart, the head and neck will represent a few tall columns on the left, and the long tail that follows will represent many short columns that spread along most of the x-axis. The child also noted that the Brachiosaurus is vegetarian and cute, and therefore it will be widely referred to in this episode. Now back to politics. So, contrary to political views, which are normal distribution, political actions like demonstrations are a power law distribution. Now let's take a moment to think about it. In how many of the demonstrations that have taken place in the world in the recent years have we participated in? If the answer is between 0 and 2, you shouldn't feel bad. Most people prefer to demonstrate indifference. But alongside quiet apathy lane, there will be a tiny but very prominent minority of serial protesters that will frequently appear on the news shouting through a megaphone and probably suffer from a broken voice the next morning. <coughs> so, if we'll put the population on the x-axis and sort by political opinions from left to right, <laughs> pun intended, we'll get a few short columns on the far left and a few short columns on the far right. The high columns will be in the center of our graph. But what if we'll put the same population on a chart, but this time we'll sort by the amount of times they've participated in demonstrations from most to least. What will happen is that we'll get a few tall columns on the left indicating high participation in demonstrations, which will be the dinosaur's head. The rest of our graph will look like a long tail consisting of very short columns indicating low participation level or none. Most of us don't participate and when we do act, it's thanks for the persistence of those inhabiting the dinosaur's head. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many. As early as the beginning of the 20th century, several examples of Paolo distribution were reported, although called by other names. For example, Felix Orbach, who was a physicist, discovered a century ago that the population distribution in cities is a Paolo. The largest city will be twice as large as the second largest city, and three times as large as the third largest city, and so on. So if we turn the city's population to columns on a graph, and sort by size, we will see a few very tall columns that represent major cities, the dinosaur's head, and a lot of small columns that represent small settlements that make up the long tail. Sounds dubious? I commend the skeptics among us for their skepticism, but I've got to refer them to the Central Bureau of Statistics to watch the power law in action. Let's take Israel as an example of a law-abiding country, a power law-abiding that is. As of 2018, Jerusalem, which is the biggest city in Israel, has about 920,000 residents, which is twice as much as Tel Aviv, which has about 450,000, and three times as much as Haifa, which has about 280,000 residents. If you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> those crazy Israelis and their crazy statistics, check out New York, Chicago, Houston, and so on. The more you go on, you'll get roughly the same results. Why roughly? And why it was a physicist that discovered this? In order to understand why, you'll have to bear through yet some more examples. A slightly later example is Ziff's Law. George Ziff is considered the father of computational linguistics, and as early as the 1930s, he formulated a similar law concerning the prevalence of words in a book. This law states that the most common word will appear in a book twice as much as the second frequent word, three times more than the third frequent word, and so on. In fact, 
It can be said that half of each book consists of just a hundred or two hundred words, and the rest of the book consists of words that will be repeated only once or twice. Those seldomly used words form the long tail of the distribution. This is the reason why a simple word count in the text to understand what it's about is a bit naive, because most of the common words will probably be a non-indicative conjunctions. But the most significant and lesser known achievement of Ziff was that his interns applied his word count research on James Joyce's book, Ulysses. That's why Ziff holds the record for the one who made the most students finish this book. Not a trivial accomplishment. But perhaps the most prominent area where we detect a power law is in the field of economics. The hope of those striving for economics equality is shattered time and time again by the fact that few people hold majority of the capital. A classic power law. That's why the power law serves as one of the metrics in the Gini index, or so-called inequality index, that is used in comparative economics. The Gini index is the score of the distance between the actual distribution of wealth, which is power law, and a uniform distribution, which is a flat line in the graph representing absolute equality, meaning everyone has the same amount of wealth. The biggest the distance score on the Gini index between the metrics, the further society is from equality. Location or traffic data, which has many applications, is also a good example of power law. It may not sound very intuitive, but airport routes are a power law. There are a few major airports that depart to many destinations, LAX, LaGuardia, etc. But most airports in the world have only a few destinations. This creates a graph with a few tall columns of airports with many destinations, and a long tail of airports with a single destination. Let's take another example from location and traffic data. Most of the destinations of the citizens of Israel are, well, in Israel. So, let's put it on a graph. On the x-axis, we'll put side by side all the countries in the world representing possible destinations for Israelis, while the y-axis will represent the destination's frequency. What we'll get is a very tall column for Israel, and the rest a long tail of short columns representing all the other countries. You can encounter Israelis in many parts of the world, whether you like it or not, but take comfort in the fact that what you're seeing is just Israel's long tail. The traffic destinations of most city dwellers are also mostly within the city itself, leaving a long tail of destinations outside the city that city folk seldom go to, say, their parents' house in the suburbs. If we'll crank up the resolution of the data in order to watch individuals' behavior, we'll find out that there are about two places in which the person spends most of the time, usually their home and their workplace, and a long list, or tail, of many other places in which the person spends just a small amount of time. Note that you can tilt this graph and still get a power law. What does this mean? Instead of destinations we go to, we can look at distances we travel. And so, we will get one tall column to represent the exotic trip we've made when we were young, adventurous, and COVID-free, and many short columns of short movements in our area of residence. Once in a while, we might fly to a distant destination, but most of our movements are short and on foot. The power law is also manifested in nature, as we can see in the distributions of earthquakes, river flows, interaction between proteins in the cell, and metabolism in animals. The last one is a function of the animal size, which we have already demonstrated that it conforms to the power law. But back to human society, I think there's something discouraging about the power law. By its definition, most of us will find themselves in the long tail of the dinosaur, and the chances of changing this are not in our favor. Bizarrely, my kid is very talented, but looking at other people's scores on a computer game can discourage him. Game scores are unfortunately power law, and what's the chance that he will get a result that even comes close to the number one ranking player? That's why I was happy to find out that there is at least one area where I am at the top of the dinosaur. My wife is a librarian in the largest municipal library in the country. In the annual statistics that the library publishes each new year, 
It turned out that my wife took out the largest number of books from the library. As you can guess, the majority took only a book or two and formed the long tail. So how does it relate to me? Well, someone also needs to return all the books my wife took out, so that probably makes me the number one book returner in the country. So how does understanding the power law contribute to us? If we're already using real-life examples, then the first thing that pops to me is shelves. When we moved to our new apartment, which contained about 40 shelves for clothes, I told my spouse that I forsake my half of shelf space in advance and that she can take over all the shelves. I promised her that I would only use two shelves, which of course were located at a strategic and convenient location. <laughs> I gave up my half, didn't I? Not surprisingly, it turned out that my wife also uses only two shelves most of the time and the rest of the shelves are being used seldomly or never. This is how statistics engineered a long-lasting peace in our home. Understanding the power law also helps us to encourage engagement in gaming. We mentioned a moment ago that it's discouraging to see records of other gamers that we will never reach. An important thing to remember about the power law is that in order to see it in our data, we need a sufficient sample. If we sample only the heights of first graders, for example, we get a normal distribution. If we look at the heights of all creatures on Earth, from whales to bacteria, we get a power law, as we saw in the small world episode. The more we sample, the more our data will converge to a power law distribution. So, as a complementary, the more we reduce the sample, we get a normal distribution and records that we are more likely to break. For example, if we only see the results of those who are close to us, like our friends, or even better, reduce the sample size to include only ourselves, we will increase our motivation to play because we will get records that are easier for us to break. Another example. When we want to understand what our chances are of succeeding in business world of startups, then it's already a known fact that only 1% of startups become a unicorn, that is, raising lots of money, and the other 90 plus percent are the long tail, having a mild or no success at all. And speaking of long tail in the business world, we must mention Chris Anderson, who in 2004 published an article that later became a book called The Long Tail and introduced the concept to popular culture. Anderson's argument was that there was money to be made in the long tail of products. He argued that a wide variety of niche products, each of which sold little on its own, would amount eventually to a large sum of money. This claim was based on the newly developed digital stores where the size of goods was almost irrelevant. This made it easier to own niche products that together made up a significant portion of the market. One example given in the book is a comparison between the digital Amazon and Barnes & Noble, a chain of bookstores in the physical world. 30% of Amazon sales in 2008, according to the book, were of books that were not held by Barnes & Noble, which held about 100,000 books. Barnes & Noble didn't hold these books because they were too niche and therefore didn't have the economic viability to hold them. This means that the long tail of niche books was responsible for 30% of sales in Amazon. But there are a few problems with the ideas that come up in the book. Dropshipping, or the ability to sell products that a digital store owner doesn't own, seems to strengthen Anderson's claim, but it still needs some maintenance and marketing, and of course, there's competition. And indeed, small business owners at Amazon find themselves trampled by Amazon's own products. Another problem in the book is Anderson's claim that technological global trends help to fatten the long tail and make niche products more profitable. What he doesn't mention is that the same trends also serve those already empowered by the Paolo. For example, increasing access to the internet undoubtedly makes it easier to reach niche products, but at the same time makes it easier to get popular products as well. But despite all I've said, if you are over the age of 40 and you remember what a DVD is, then the book will provide a fun toilet reading. So, we learned that contrary to our intuition, many things in life are paolo. But it's not over. Now let's stretch our intuition a little more and talk about what the Paolo does to the concept of average that we've discussed about early on.
We have seen that the concept of average or mean in a normal distribution serves us well and tells us what's what in the data. For example, the average height of humans allows us to build chairs in mass production. The same goes for averages cousins, the standard deviations. They can tell us what are the outliers in our data. But if our data is distributed into a power law, and it is distributed into a power law, then what does mean mean? Let's imagine an office with 30 employees earning between $3,000 and $6,000 a month in a normal distribution. When suddenly, the rich boss enters the office and he earns about $100 million a month. Suddenly, the distribution of salaries becomes a power law and the average salary of the occupants of the room rises above $3 million. Which of the figures in the office does this average represent? The answer is no one. The use of the mean in a normal distribution stems from the assumption that its numerable value helps to describe most of the data. But that's not the case in a long-tail distribution. In such a distribution, the vast majority will be below average and a few well above it. Most of us don't share offices with billionaires, but do share nationality with them. When calculating the average salary in the country, keep in mind that our data is not normally distributed. In this context, I remember a news article in 2019 about the struggle of employees from a big bank in Israel to raise their wages. One of the reporters lashed out at one of the employees, saying they have nothing to complain about because their average salary is over $9,000. The low-level employee denied this and replied that no one who works with him earns such a high salary. Without taking sides, just knowing the problematic nature of average gives some weight to the employee's claim. How do we know that the CEO's salary hasn't weighted on the average and significantly inflated the result? A frequent example in books given for the inappropriate use of averages and standard deviations in a power distribution can be found in cities size. If cities were normally distributed, New York with its 8.5 million inhabitants couldn't have existed because it's too large for a standard deviation from an average in a normal distribution. It's impossible to talk about the subject without mentioning the book Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. The book is mainly dedicated to two topics. The first topic that's covered by most of the book is the genius of Nassim Taleb himself. The second topic is the difference between a normal or Gaussian distribution and a Paolo distribution. The book points to common mistakes in analyzing data when using mean and its derivative, the standard deviation. If we put Taleb's beautiful mind aside for a moment and focus on his arguments, they touch disturbing issues that concern many of the data science community, mainly anomaly detection and forecasts. Many papers on those topics are based in one way or another on normal distribution, mean, and standard deviations. But since for the most part, the data we rely on is a power law, the concept of average doesn't hold for most of the data, and therefore, we also impair the results we get using standard deviation. In forecasting, a standard deviation won't be able to predict extreme events as they will be so far from average that they will seem almost impossible. But in fact, they are more common and constitute a completely normal phenomena in our Paolo distributed world. Take for example risk assessment against earthquakes, which, as already been mentioned, is a Paolo distribution, meaning there are many small earthquakes and a few large ones. Now let's say we succumbed to our intuition and took measures against the average earthquake. We are likely to encounter a lot of small earthquakes, uh, below average, so, in most cases, we overshot our use of resources, and this would be wasteful. When we'll encounter the big earthquake, which is well above average, we'll find that we have invested too little resources, and this would be catastrophic. Although big earthquakes are rare, they are more common than the standard deviation tells us, and they will happen eventually. Remember, as we increase the sample, meaning in this case we allow more time to go by, the data will reflect the Paolo. In the next section, we will discuss Paolo in networks, but wait, what about the Monty Hall problem from the beginning of the episode? So, as with any argument I had with him, my friend was right. 
The answer is that it's better to change the original choice from curtain number one to curtain number three, where the chances of winning a goat are two to three. Intuitive? Not by a long shot. So, let's talk about Paolo in networks. The Paolo is not intuitive, and so it's application in the field of networks. So, it's no wonder that it hasn't caught the eyes of researchers for a long time. We should recall that for most of the 20th century, data was limited, and as we have already learned, too small a sample of a network would increase the chance of getting a normal distribution and bias in our data. It's therefore not surprising that the way of thinking about networks was through Erdos and Rene model, which we talked about in the episode A Small World. The model assumes that networks are random and normally distributed. Networks create messy structures, and therefore it made sense that they were built by random. This notion about networks was kept, despite hints that appeared even in the limited data that was available. A more thorough explanation about those hints can be found in the previous episode, so we will only briefly mention two examples. The first example is that of Jacob Moreno, a psychologist and educator, who in 1930 drew sociograms of classroom friendships. In the graphs he drew, there were few pupils that many wanted to be their friends, compared to many pupils without friends or with only one friend. The number of unpopular pupils was several times greater than the popular ones, making up the long tail of the Paolo. Presumably, if Moreno had drawn a graph of friendships of entire schools, he would have gotten an even longer tail. The second example is a similar phenomenon that appeared in Stanley Milgram's Small World Experiment or the Six Degrees Experiment in the 1960s. Milgram set out to find how many steps would the chain letter have to go through from a random source to a random destination through mutual friends. A lesser known aspect of the experiment was the discovery that almost half of the chains passed through the same three people. Those three people made up only 1% of the participants, meaning a few people on the network whose role was significantly bigger than the others in the Paolo ratio. The big breakthrough of the internet and the giant networks, like the World Wide Web, has led to a significant development in the study of networks and to the understanding that the structure of the network is not as random as was commonly thought. In 1999, a paper was published titled Emergence of Scaling in Random Networks. Behind the sexy title were two researchers, Albert and Barabashi, whose discoveries changed the way we think about networks. I will take this opportunity to recommend Barabashi's book, Links, which is a fascinating and a very easy-to-read book. So, Barabashi and Albert studied links between web pages. What Barabashi has discovered is that there are very few pages on the web that have lots of links, compared to the long tail of web pages that only have one or two links. Today it's a known fact that most of the internet consists of such pages that have only a few links or none at all, and most of them are in the part of the internet called Deep Web, which is estimated to contain about 90% of the internet. On a side note, Deep Web is not the same as Dark Web or Darknet. Deep Web is a technical term for pages that aren't indexed by search engines. Only a small part of them constitute the Darknet, which is usually used for shady businesses. The concept of the deep web might already be familiar to many of the online community, even if they didn't think of it as a Paolo. But how about our intuitions regarding Facebook, the largest social network in the world? In recent years, I've given hundreds of lectures on the subject, and in each lecture, I've conducted a small experiment. I asked for volunteers in the audience and asked them how many friends they have on Facebook. Usually the answer was somewhere between 200 and 2,000. Here and there I found a sinner who didn't have Facebook. The audience's intuition was that those results constituted the average, meaning that most people on Facebook have between 200 and 2,000 friends, and there are probably a few who have many thousands of friends, and a few who have just few friends. Bottom line, it seemed to them like a classic example of a normal distribution. When I confronted them with the fact that Facebook is actually a Paolo distribution, 
meaning there are a few people with thousands of friends and the majority of users have probably just one or two friends or no friends at all, the reactions ranged from astonishment to healthy skepticism. I cannot tell a lie, there were also about two or three who <laughs> didn't give a duck. By the way, when I say few people on Facebook who have thousands of friends, it's important to remember that this is a network with two and a half billion active users, yes? So, a few is not so few. I refer to the overall percentage. The reason this fact is not intuitive is that we know almost no one from Facebook's long tail. This probably because those people have only one or two friends or have no friends at all, so what are the odds we'll know them? But hold on. Wait a second. But what about bots or other fake users? Maybe they are the ones who make up the long tail and produce an unnatural power law. In order to test this claim, let's take for example Ellen DeGeneres, the actress and comedian with about 150 million followers on social media. A study published in 2019 found that 50% of her followers are fake. <laughs> That's a lot. But she still has tens of millions of followers, most of whom probably don't have many followers. As we can see, fake profiles might consist a big portion of the long tail, but not enough to call it a fake tail. And here's another thing. The power law is a widespread phenomena in many types of networks that don't contain fake users, such as biological networks or human networks, organizational and others. So, with or without fake nodes, the long tail is alive and well. If you are still not convinced, then let's reconcile your intuition with the fact that on Facebook, 1% post content, 9% reply, and 90% post nothing. Does this make more sense? This example of a power law is more intuitive because most of us are probably in the 99%. But the logic behind this is the same logic, only that instead of a distribution of connections, we presented a distribution of network activity. In the years following Barabashi's paper, many researchers presented empirical studies of networks that reinforced the power law theory, not only in the context of a distribution of edges in a network, but also found power law in all other metrics of networks. As we've seen in the example of Facebook, not only is the number of friends that the user has is distributed as a power law, but also the creation of content. Whether it's the link count for each node or its activity in the network, the strength of the connections between the nodes or the size of the connected components or islands in the network, and more. All these metrics are distributed as Paolo. But Barabashi discovered something more. Paolo networks has a fascinating feature, and it is that Paolo networks are scale-free. That is, at any scale or resolution we look at the network, we get a Paolo. What does it mean? Let's return to the example we gave for a power law in the context of analyzing location and traffic patterns. Even when we scaled up in resolution from worldwide traffic data, going through data at the state and city level, up to the resolution of the individual person, in each resolution, we got data that is distributed as a power law. This truly amazing characteristic has additional implications that we'll explore in the following episodes dealing with communities and dynamic networks. So, to conclude this section, it doesn't matter if we explore Facebook, Twitter, a phone network, or connections between sites on the internet. It doesn't matter if we analyze large or small network, a day's or a week's period of network data, a network in routine mode, or a network in crisis mode. In each case, we get a long tail distribution. And this is reflected not only in every metric of the network, but also in any resolution we view it. As can be seen from the example so far, the power law distribution is not limited to networks, but it's such a significant network phenomena that it earned the title, the network's number one law. Now let's apply law number one on one of the most controversial networks, and that's the Bitcoin network, and see where it takes us. Bitcoin, for those who haven't been here in the last 10 years, is a digital currency, and because it's based on a blockchain platform, its transaction data is available to all. Some network scientists jumped on the opportunity and built a Bitcoin graph or network by assigning edges between traders and assigning weights to the edges by the size of the transaction. Bitcoin's claim to fame is that it's a social currency. 
Bitcoin advocates denounce the fiat, which is the name for the currency that is backed up by governments, as a victim to the whims of those governments and central banks. They consider the fiat as a centralized currency that is controlled by the few in power. Bitcoin, they'll say, is a decentralized currency and thus represents the will of the people. It's true that our currency's value is affected by governments and central banks, but they in turn are affected by other governments and other central banks that are affected by the market and so on and so forth. For better or worse, but probably for the better, this complex system prevents government officials from capriciously deciding on radical currency changes. In some countries, the people can even replace those in charge of it. In contrast, who runs the show in Bitcoin? According to the brochure, it's the general public, but according to the network's law, the story is totally different. And have we mentioned the Paolo before? In practice, a network is a network, and Bitcoin is a network. And as with any network, we get a Paolo. So how does this help us understand what's going on there? The Bitcoin's network is not an exception and is dominated by a few accounts that make most of the transactions. At least till 2013, these were very few accounts indeed that included the Bitcoin exchange, Bitcoin mining companies from Russia and China, and of course, the gambling industry. Does this fine but short list represents the will of the people? Given such a highly concentrated control, can it still be said that Bitcoin is a decentralized currency? So, we've seen that human and human-related networks are shaped as a paolo. But there are also other networks in nature, such as the neural network in the brain and the vascular network that has the same feature. It's not a coincidence and it's certainly not random. So, what's the reason for it? To answer this, we will demonstrate the evolutionary logic behind Paolo and how it benefits the network. Paolo networks have two main advantages, which are efficiency and resilience. A Paolo configuration is more economical, and a good example of this is the road network. Since most of the traffic is local, the road system within the city is denser and consists of many small and narrow streets or roads. Traffic between cities is sparser, so in this case, traffic congests to long and wide roads. We now got a Paolo, a few long distance roads and many short ones. Any other distribution would be redundant and use up too many resources. So, a star-shaped network, that is, a network with a central junction and all the other nodes are connected only to it, is probably the most efficient network. But what about network resilience? Intuitively, a star-shaped network sounds very vulnerable, because the whole network is dependent on one central node. Efficiency in power law is understandable, but where is the resilience? Evolutionary speaking, this network is actually more resilient to random hazards. A random network, as described by Ardoche and René, meaning a network with a normal distribution, will decompose very quickly to numerous connected components or islands in the network, after a small number of random attacks. By contrast, in a Paolo network, as real networks are distributed, there is a lower chance for significant damage from random attacks. Why is that? The reason for this is that central nodes in the network are rare. 99% of the network will be comprised of nodes that have only one or few edges, so targeting them will inflict only negligible damage to the network as a whole. That's why our vascular network is a paolo, otherwise any random scratch would bleed much more. But at the same time, intentional injury to the heart is fatal. The obvious conclusion is that informed attackers that afflict intentional damage can dismantle the paolo network very easily by targeting the central nodes. That's why understanding the paolo provides significant advantage for the purposes of network defense or attack. Take the C. elegans for example. C. elegans is short for a short worm, about a millimeter long, and is probably the smallest known animal with a neural network. Its entire small set of neurons, about 300, was mapped in a 20 years effort which won the Nobel Prize. In the many studies performed on the C. elegans, damage to the neurons in the long tail, pun not intended, didn't result in significant changes in its behavior. In contrast, Damage to a central neuron, which has the most connections to other neurons, 
had a significant effect on the worm, for example on its ability to move. In order to locate these central nodes, we will need to use SNA or social network analysis algorithms known as centrality measures. These metrics allow us to find the centers of gravity of the network and through them control the network, understand what is happening in it, strengthen or dismantle it, etc. There are probably hundreds of algorithms to find these hubs in the network, but we will deal with them in the next episode. So now that we understand the logic behind the power law networks, let's try to explain how it came to be. We've mentioned Felix Orbach, who, as a physicist a hundred years ago, realized that the size of cities obeys a power law. But why did that discovery was originated from the field of physics? The connection between network science and physics is not trivial, as can attest a physics professor from the University of Jerusalem, who shall remain anonymous. This professor specializes in network research, and he used to say, How do I know I'm a physicist? When I'm confronted by my peers in the hallway, telling me that what I'm doing is not physics. If I were a chemist, they wouldn't have been so upset. Many of the examples we gave for a Paolo distribution are from humans' behavior perspective. For example, network behavior, population dispersal in cities, traffic habits, or use of shelves. But there are many examples that are not conditioned by human behavior, for example, earthquakes, river flow, animal size, blood vessels, neurons in the brain, protein interactions, and more. So, this begs the question, when we see a power law in human networks, is it a result of human behavior or the nature of physics? If the power law stems from human behavior, human behavior might change one day and abolish the power law, but physical laws are supposed to be a bit more rigid. If the power law is a law of physics, then do we as human beings have a free choice? Isaac Asimov, perhaps the most famous science fiction author, presented in his series The Foundation, an organization that conducts psycho-historical research, which is a field made up by Asimov that has the ability to predict the future based on the statistical nature of the behavior of the masses. Admittedly, this scenario is too sci-fi-ish, but the power law, as we have seen, allows for pretty good predictions of human behavior and data. There are more physical laws that manifest in human society, and they are studied in a field called social physics, which is a real field. This field uses those laws to test their application to society. So if we are controlled by physics principles, do we have free choice, or don't we? If you kept listening, it means you have no choice, so we'll continue. Barabash's conclusion from his groundbreaking research was that the reason for the power law is that networks are built according to a preferential attachment model. It means that an edge is not randomly created between two nodes, but that nodes prefer to connect to the more connected nodes. The intuitive explanation for this is the saying, the rich get richer since it's easier for those who have capital, economic or social, to obtain additional capital, and in the case of network, more edges or connections. This can explain the dinosaur's head as we called it, or the creation of hubs in our network. A possible physical explanation for the long tail of the power law is that just as a flow seeks the way of least resistance, so are the ones in the long tail. They spend the minimum energy as a default, much like in the default bias concept. Our default is usually to do nothing. When we do act, it is easiest for us to do what others do. For example, connect to a central hub, and thus invest the minimum required energy. For example, there are many things I don't know, but my default mode urges me to sit and keep watching Netflix and stop searching for answers online. When I have no choice and I have to look up something, then it's easier for me to look it up in Wikipedia than to do independent research. Because that's what everyone else does. FYI, if we're on the subject of Wikipedia, then the contribution to Wikipedia is also a power law, of course. There will be few who will contribute to many Wikipedia values, 
and the majority will contribute to only few values or not contribute at all. Now, let's refer to the example given at the beginning of the episode regarding the difference between political opinions and political demonstrations. Opinions don't tax our energy, and they are distributed normally. Participation in demonstrations requires effort and energy, and therefore will be power-low distributed. Our default is not to participate. This also explains the mild results in Milgram's experiment, which we've mentioned in the previous episode. Milgram was somewhat aware of this attitude toward non-participation, so he took measures to encourage it. First, he acted to recruit particularly sociable people to take part in the experiment by appealing to them through newspaper ads that targeted this section of the population. Second, he invested heavily in the design of the envelopes sent to potential participants. For example, he used official Harvard University's envelopes and included impressive-looking notebooks so that the potential participants will feel that they are taking part in a respectable academic endeavor and will be encouraged to take part in it. Despite Milgram's effort, the end result of the experiment was that the vast majority of chains didn't reach the target and were mostly broken or didn't even start. But apparently, thanks to the novelty of the research and his efforts, it was probably the highest success rate such an experiment had or will have. All the remakes or copycats of Milgram's experiment, including yours truly, barely crossed the single percent of successful chains, if any. That's because for the majority of the potential participants, the default is not to participate. So back to Barbashi's preferential attachment idea. Something is missing in this model. The problem with saying the rich get richer is that it doesn't explain why there are cases where the rich get poorer, or vice versa. This is where Dr. Ossie Mokrin from the University of Haifa enters the picture. In recent years, Dr. Mokrin has proposed a hypothesis of the Temporal Preferential Attachment, or TPA. Her hypothesis states that nodes prefer to attach to trendier nodes, rather than central nodes, or hubs. Trendy nodes refer to a node that has been gaining more links recently, even if it's not necessarily the most linked node at the time. The empirical study was done on many varied networks, while controlling, in a statistical sense, the initial centrality of the nodes in the network. What does it mean? Simply, each network was divided to numerous time segments, or bins, while ignoring the centrality of the nodes in the first segment. Mokrin's observation was that the more connections were added to the node, the more likely it would increase its chances of receiving more connections in the next segment, regardless of its initial centrality. We can see here that network centrality is dynamic, and those who were central in the past won't necessarily be central in the future. A trend begins, ends, and can also make a comeback, as in life. The thing that makes this hypothesis a potentially powerful discovery is that it seems to be a new and universal network law, and therefore applicable to any network. TPA seems to be a promising direction that will make it possible to identify emerging trends in the network, for example, the formation of centers of gravity or network activities. Another possible application to the TPA model is to identify the rhythm or tempo of the network. Dr. Mokrin's study also showed that there are networks in which the trends change all the time, and there are those in which the rate of the turnovers is slower. The tempo of the network can help us to analyze the dynamics of the networks, but we'll discuss this in much more detail in the episode dedicated to dynamic networks. One final word before summing up. The discovery of the magical features of the power law in networks has made this concept a slightly charged word in network science. About 20 years after Bawabashi's discovery, a network researcher named Closet published a paper criticizing the general use of the term power law. Using empirical research, he has demonstrated that many networks show only weak signs of a true power law distribution. This paper ignited a heated debate on Twitter and shocked at least 10 people around the world. I therefore suggest not to get too excited about this because the discussion can be summed up as follows. A pure power law distribution is indeed a relatively rare event. 
If we'll check up close the predictions made by Orbach about the city size, for example, we'll discover that the magical multiplication relationship between the columns won't last long. The first three largest cities will probably abide to a pure power law, but the others probably won't. But it's still close to a power law, and that's enough. Why? Because all the features mentioned in this episode will also appear in distributions that are close to a power law. For example, even if they are not pure power law, all networks are scale-free, and of course, they exhibit the long tail of the distribution, meaning there are a few hubs in the network that are highly linked, and most of the network consists of nodes that have only a few edges. It's clear that long-tail distribution is a more accurate term than power law, but power law has already caught on, so we will use both terms, and I hope Closet won't find it offensive. So, let's conclude. We delved into the concept of the power law and demonstrated it on many datasets. We've seen that it's a significant reoccurring phenomena in every network and in every metric or dimension of the network. We've seen that the power law produces centers of gravity or hubs in the network, and we analyzed the logic behind it and the possible reasons for its formation. We have seen that power law and network laws allow the researcher to make good predictions and take a data-driven approach that has the advantage of being independent of intuition or prior experience. Now that we understand that every network has gravity centers, thanks to the power law, we will learn in the next episode how to find them using centrality measures. Did you enjoy and want to share? Have you suffered and you don't want to suffer alone? Tell your friends or add a review on Apple Podcasts and or like our Facebook page. If you're from Israel, please add a review in Podcasts of Israel. The episode's notes and links are available on Netflix's site. That's www.snapod.net. The music is courtesy of Compileband. Check them out. See you in the next episode of Netflix. <laughs>